Why did Christ Jesus come is the question that we have spent the last two weeks thinking about and we'll conclude today in our time this morning considering why Christ Jesus came into the world. Last week we considered that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We heard from the Apostle Paul that Christ came to save sinners of whom he was the foremost and we considered that Christ came to destroy sin by being an atonement for us. This morning as we consider that, I've looked at a few different Christmas carols last week. Hark, I hear, hark the angels sing. God rest you merry gentlemen, a song that we are most familiar with. God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. To save us all from Satan's power. Uh, One often we sing about, but we often don't think about, is that Christ Jesus came to destroy Satan. That Christ Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Christ come? Well, surely the the pinnacle reason Christ came was to save sinners. That's what we looked at last week. But this week, all the more richer and, and I hope helpful to consider that Christ Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And for that, this morning, we're going to turn to 1 John. 1 John in chapter 3. Now, since we're not accustomed to just parachuting or jumping into a book like this, it's always helpful to know why John is writing and, and what, what's going on in this letter before we read it. Remember, John is writing to the church that he had the privilege of shepherding. He was one of the elders of the church in Ephesus. Last week, we considered the main preaching pastor. We, we considered a letter written to that main preaching pastor there in Ephesus, a guy by the name of Timothy. Paul had planted the church. Timothy was the lead preaching pastor of the church. And the Apostle John was one of the elders of that church that helped pastor alongside Timothy. Fascinatingly enough, both of them writing about the coming of Christ as a motive towards holiness. But but nonetheless, here John is writing to these Christians in Ephesus. and And he writes to help these Christians differentiate between true and false Christians. And so really the whole letter of of 1 John is taken up with the task of, of really trying to decipher, helping give us tools, if you will, uh, tests, uh, ways to test whether or not one is really a Christian or not. So just claiming to be a Christian is insufficient. Uh, John goes to length to demonstrate that you can run around town calling yourself a Christian all the time and you can say that you're a follower of Christ, but if you are in sin, well then... You're confused. Or if you do not believe Jesus is the eternal Son of God, then well, then you can't be a Christian. Or if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, you cannot be a Christian. And so John is writing this letter to, to really help Christians understand what is true and what is false. And he has that really famous line that you know well about those who went out from us because they were not of us. John seeks to encourage those in Ephesus by reminding them that not everyone who claims to follow Christ is a Christian. There are a lot of fake Christians. So it was true in the first century. And brothers and sisters, it is true in the 21st century. 
There are many who disguise themselves to being children of God. And in our particular text this morning, John uses this language of children of God. Who is a child of God? Who is or who are the children of God? Now, many might seek to answer that in various ways. We know one popular song thought that everyone is a child of God. That all people attributed because they're created by God are children of God. Maybe that's your thought this morning, that that everyone is a child of God, that everyone created is a child of God. Or perhaps this morning you think that the children of God are those who are good, those who are moral people, those who, you know, keep from doing what is wrong and try to do what is right. Surely this season offers a a great occasion to that. We hear stories about that all the time, about being generous and generosity. We We watch stories like the Christmas carol that teaches us about being kind to others and generous in our giving. Is it those who are good, who are morally upright people? Or is it third, those who are born again? Those who are righteous, those who live holy lives. Well, friend, that's a good question to ask yourself as we begin this new year. Am I a child of God merely because I'm created? Now, to be clear, you have value. If you're not a Christian this morning, you have intrinsic value, innate value in and of yourself because you're created in the image of God. So you are valuable today if you're not a Christian. You are valuable to God because you are created in His image. Therefore, you are worthy of life and you are worthy of dignity and respect. Even though you you rebel against God and you hate God. You still have value this morning. But this morning we're thinking particularly about who are those in God's family? Who is it that are welcome to God's table? Who can come over to God's house and fellowship with Him and His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, friend, for an answer to that, I hope we find it here in 1 John. So I invite you to turn there, 1 John. And I'm actually going to begin in verse 2, or chapter 2, excuse me, in verse 28. Oftentimes in our Bibles, the divisions are are not as quite accurate as as we hope they were. Um, Chapter and verse divisions are not inspired by God. He didn't put them in there, man did, to help aid the reader. That's good, they're good, they're not evil, um, but sometimes because we're men, we get things wrong. But I'm going to begin in verse 28 of chapter 2, just just a few verses up. But this morning, we're going to focus particularly on verses 4 through 10. But for context's sake, I want to read this whole section. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, 
because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We see in this passage both the return of Christ and the coming of Christ, the second advent of Christ and the first advent of Christ. The word advent means coming, so if you didn't grow up in a liturgical uh, world, a, a sort of mainline Protestant church or even Roman Catholic, you're like, what is Advent other than those little calendars you play with at Christmas time? Uh, Advent means coming. And we see here in verses 28 through chapter 3 and verse 3, John particularly focused on the second coming of Christ. When he appears, when he comes, when he appears, he says, we may have confidence and not shrink back. And so we're not going to have time to think about this this morning. But I encourage you, if you want, what John is arguing here in this whole section I just read is two motives to holiness. Two motives towards holiness. Why should you and I be holy? First, in verses 28 through chapter 3 and verse, verse 3, because Jesus is coming again. You should be holy. You should strive towards holiness in your life because you don't want to be caught naked when Jesus comes again, he says. You don't want to be caught ashamed, ashamed of your sin. Imagine, if you will, what you'll be doing when the Lord returns. Do you really want to be in the midst of sin when the Lord returns, John writes? Do you really want to be caught sinning when Christ comes? And so, pursue holiness, he says. But this morning, since it's the sort of first Advent season, as we're thinking about Christ's coming, we're going to focus on verses 4 through 10, where, where John says the motive to holiness is not only the return of Christ, but also the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. And, and so Christ's coming motivates believers to throw off the chains of sin and to clothe themselves in the righteous robes of Christ because he came to give us freedom from sin. And Satan. We want to think particularly this morning about Christ coming to give us freedom from sin, from the shame of sin, and freedom from the works of the devil. So the purpose of our time this morning is to really exhort Christians, those who are born of God, to pursue holiness. And boy, what a fitting time it is as you are making those New Year's resolutions, which are good. 
and praiseworthy that, that you make those resolutions to say, I'm going to serve the Lord this new season. This fresh start tomorrow morning. Oh, the old is gone and the new has come and I can serve Christ today. Let, let it be a resolve today to pursue holiness this new year. Allow these two motives that John writes us to motivate you towards Christ's likeness. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10 and and really just two points to the sermon. So if you take notes, there's just two points. John motivates believers towards holiness in two ways. And each of them are centered around the first advent of Christ. First, the first step towards holiness is to recognize the sinfulness of sin. The first step towards holiness is to recognize the sinfulness of sin, both in its nature as lawlessness and its origin as demonic. To understand the nature and the origin of sin. And the second step towards holiness is to see sin as incompatible with Christ. To see that sin is incompatible with Christ in His sinless person, in His saving work, and His call upon the children of God. These are the things we want to consider this morning in God's Word. First, recognize, John says, the sinfulness of sin. Recognize the wickedness, the vileness of sin. See sin for what it really is. In verses 4 and 6, John outlines here for us the nature of sin. He tells us, he peels back the curtain, if you will, about sin. And he writes in verse 4, everyone, everyone. I'm going to comment on this verse, or this word very briefly, but that word everyone is repeated over and over and over. Now in the English translation you see before you, it, it, it has changed a little bit just for stylistic purposes. But in the original, John says, everyone who makes a practice. Everyone who abides in him does not keep on sinning. Everyone who keeps on sinning has neither sin. So he repeats this everyone because John wants to make clear the universality of sin. That sin is not a respecter of persons. Sin isn't just something that really bad people struggle with. Sin isn't something that just a select few people struggle with. No, it is a universal problem and demands a universal atonement. Sin, he says, is lawlessness. Now, in the English English Standard Version here, we see a little bit of a, a different translation than, than maybe if you're looking at a different, maybe the Christian Standard Bible. <laughs> I will say if you read the Christian Standard Bible, it is, it is very clear and to the point and somewhat cold. Uh, and, and the ESV helpfully here fleshes out the meaning a bit for us, uh, lest we, we all go home crying because we'll never be saved because we're all sinners. Uh, but notice here in verse 4 what John says, and the ESV is, is fleshing out a bit of what he says. Literally says, everyone who sins practices lawlessness. That's true, and that's right, but but what John is after here is the idea of makes a practice of sinning. 
So that is what John has in mind here is habitual and unrepentant sin. So this morning, you are a sinner as you sit in your pew this morning. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Now, you may disagree with that statement, but it is true. You're a sinner. Everyone of humanity uh, has fallen from the grace of God. Everyone has fallen short of God's glory. Everyone is sinful. To various degrees, but every one of us is sinful. Every one of us here this morning is a sinner. Does John mean then that Christians cannot sin? Is that what John means? That, that if this morning, if you're a Christian, if you've sinned since becoming a Christian, well then all hope is lost for you? Because he says that everyone who sins, or in verse 6, no one who abides, on, abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And so the question then begins, can we be a Christian and still sin? We'll turn over to chapter 1, and John answers that question at the beginning of the letter. In chapter 1 and verse 5, John answers the question, that we have, and that I know you're thinking about. My goodness, I'm a sinner. I've sinned this morning. I'm sinning now. How is it that I can be a follower of Christ? Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship him with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice what he says in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not, not in us. Or deceive. So if that's you this morning, you think I'm good, I'm not messed up. Well, you're deceived, the Bible says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, that is, we've never sinned, we've never done wrong, we've never rebelled against God, we make God to be a liar. And his word is not in us. So John is not saying this morning that Christians don't sin. What John is after here is habitual, unrepentant sin. He uses that word, walk. If we say we have fellowship with God, if we say, you know, God and I are good, we're, we're, we have fellowship, we hang out often, but we walk, you see the word picture that John has there for you, walking in sin, a, an idea of habitual, ongoing, unrepentant, everything's cool, just strolling through the park of sinfulness, he says, no, you're, you're deceived. You're confused, John says. And so what John has in mind in chapter 3 is the same thing he's writing about in chapter 1. That is, make a practice of sinning. So what John has in mind this morning are those who claim to follow Jesus, those who claim to be Christians, and are in habitual, unrepentant sin. Habitual sin. Habitual. Now I'm sure we can mince words and parse out what I mean by habitual. What do you mean by habitual? Once a week, twice a week. What do you mean once a day? The idea though is that of unrepentant. Ongoing. Callous. 
casual. Eh, I've got this under control. But it's not true. It's not true, Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The idea of practicing sin is one who's a slave to sin. But more than that, as John writes in verse 4, he has in mind those who make light of sin. Say, sin's not a big deal. You know, Jesus died for sinners, and, you know, I'm a sinner, and it's just, you know, we all make mistakes, and we all mess up. You know, God is gracious, He's kind, on and on. And we pull out John 3.16, and, you know, we soothe our wicked souls with that verse over and over, and we wallow in it, God is love, and all this and that. All the while, John writes this, Sin... Whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And in case you missed his point, he says it again. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is eschatological rebellion against God. Sin is throwing a fist in God's face and saying, Your way is not a good way. My way is the best way. John is calling out sin for what it really is. It's ugly. It's vile. And it is rebellion against God. But why does he do it? Because apparently there were some in Ephesus who thought sin isn't really that important. There were some who had a lighter view of sin than God does. Saying something isn't sin when it really is sin. Friends, and you only thought the 20th and 21st century was confused about morality. In the first century, the church faced the same daunting task that we face when the culture redefines what is right and what is wrong. So much as to do things contrary to even plain nature. We are so confused as a culture. We do things that nature even says is wrong. What John here is after is also those who grade sin on a sliding scale. Who make light of the little sin and make a big deal about the big sin. Friends, I think we are just as much in trouble here as anyone. How often do we shine the bright light upon someone's sin? How often do we shine a light on others' problems rather than looking and turning that spotlight on our own hearts? By seeing that all of our sin from the little white lies that aren't so little compared to God. One sin against an infinitely holy God demands an infinite punishment. One sin against a good and righteous and holy God 
is an act of rebellion against him. It is treason, John says, to sin. Sin is lawlessness. This is the nature of sin. But more than that, look what he writes in verse sin. Sin separates us from a holy God. You, John is clear, and, and John will mess you up if you read John. You know, a lot of, I guess it's in the Bible, so we don't read it often. But boy, he will get you. You will have your head spinning. And he says some of the most provocative statements, doesn't he? Bold was this favorite one of Jesus. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. We're going to look at that more in a moment, but look at this second half. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Oh, oh you, you think you know Jesus? You think you've seen Jesus? And you're living that life of unrepentant, habitual sin? Oh, friends, you're confused. You don't know God. Because if you knew God, you would know that you couldn't be around Him. Because God is holy. And He cannot stand unholy people. They don't want Him around. We looked at that last week in great detail. And that great verse in Habakkuk about God's eyes, the Lord's eyes being too pure to look upon evil. Sin separates us from a holy and righteous God. If you doubt that reality, go tomorrow when you start your reading plan this week and you're in Genesis 1 and you get into Genesis 2 and 3, what happens to Adam and Eve when they sin? Do they get to chill with God the rest of the day? No, they have to leave because rebellious people cannot be with a holy God. Yes, God provides for them. Yes, God covers their shame, but God banishes them. To this wasteland of a world we live in. Because we love the darkness, John said, more than the light. They profess to know God, Paul writes. But they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Friend, that is the nature of sin. Secondly, under point number one, the origin of sin. In verse 8, John writes about the origin of sin. He wants to motivate you to holiness by reminding you where sin comes from. He wants to remind you of the origin of sin so that you will flee it. So that you will see it as diabolical and demonic as it really is. Not only is sin rebellion against God, but you'll see in verse 8, it is joining in the work of the devil. Sin, John writes, is from the devil. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sin is of the devil. Whoever makes a practice of sin, whoever lives in habitual, unrepentant sin is from the devil. That's what he says, isn't it? That's what the God, God's Word says. You're from the devil. Brothers and sisters, before we start turning our heads towards the world, let us remind ourselves this is a description of us before God saved us. 
as Jesus wrote in John chapter 8 and verse 44, and I can't but help imagine that this is in John's mind as he remembered his Lord saying these words, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not, under, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Friend, what do you think? How do you think John feels about those who sin? What would he have to say to you today in your unrepentant sin? Would he, would he, would he coddle you and say it's okay, everything will be alright? Or would he identify you with your Father who is not in heaven? Your Father the devil. John goes on to write in verse 8, The reason why you're of the devil is because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. It is the nature of the devil to sin. It's his nature. That's who he is. We're told that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to totally annihilate this work. And what are these works? What is the devil's activity? Well, it's been the same since Genesis 3 or Genesis 2 and into chapter 3. To deceive, to lead men and women like you and I to rebel against God and to think it's okay. To think that everything will be alright if we live life our own way. That if we just do a little, it'll be alright. No, let us see the origin of sin. Let us recognize the sinfulness of sin. Let us see what sin really is, how vile it is, how ugly it is, how diabolical its origin. Brothers and sisters, the more you see sin for what sin really is, the more you will wish to rid yourself of it. The more you will desire to flee from it. And not hide out. Let us come into the light. The light of Christ. We see secondly here in this passage. The, the sort of second motive if you will. Centered around the coming of Christ. Is see that sin is incompatible with Christ. See sin as incompatible with Christ. Incompatible with his person, his work, and his people. Sin is incompatible. It doesn't go together. It doesn't match. My kids love to play with Legos. And sometimes they're the knockoff Legos get mixed in with the, the real Legos, right? There's the knockoff ones, the ones people try to make. And, you know, they look like, they look really similar. They, they kind of almost, you send them side by side, they look like they match. And then you start putting them together and they fall apart and they don't stay. They're incompatible. They don't match. They don't go together. They're, they look the same. They, they, they might appear on the surface to be the same. 
They're incompatible. They don't match. We see in verses 5 and 7 that sin is incompatible with Christ's person. That Christ is sinless. Verse 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. There's no sin in Christ. He has a sinless nature. That's what we said earlier in the Nicene Creed. We reminded ourselves of that truth, that Christ is our sinless Savior. That Christ died as a sinless sacrifice for sinful people. This is what Paul writes in that great passage in 2 Corinthians in 5.21. For our sake, for our sake, He made Him, that is Christ, to be sin. Who knew no sin. He had no knowledge of it. He never rebelled against his father. But he walked a perfectly righteous life. This is what we see in verse 7. Look there. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Righteousness is that right standing before God. Righteousness is that, that, that your holy life, a life of perfection, makes you right before God. Paul wrote of this in Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam and his sin. We were infected by, with Adam's sin. So by the one man's obedience, by the one man's righteousness, the many were made righteous. That's that great, glorious doctrine of justification. That we believe that God declares us to be righteous because Not because we are righteous, but because of Christ's righteousness is accredited to us. Or as we considered a few weeks ago in 1 Peter in chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous, Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous. The point that John is making is that Christ is sinless and he doesn't have sinful people. But righteous people. He takes unrighteous people and makes them righteous. Why the heck are these righteous people? God has gone through all this work to make them righteous. Why are they going back to right unrighteousness? Why are they returning to the slop? And they have been cleaned. It's incompatible. Sin is incompatible with his person. And we see in verses 5 and 8 that it's incompatible with his work. That Christ Jesus is the Savior. Look at verse 5. You know, John writes, you know this, he says. You know that he, that is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sin. It's so fascinating. He's writing here uh, in, in sort of third person or first person, and then all of a sudden, in verse 5, he shifts to to that second person plural. You all know this. He's writing to people who who, who are aware of this truth. They know why Jesus came, and he's reminding them that Jesus came to remove sin. He is putting before them the coming of Christ He's putting before them that birth narrative, reminding them that Christ Jesus came in order to motivate them in their holiness. Christ Jesus came, brothers. 
Christ Jesus came, sisters, to remove sin, to remove the, cha the chains of sin, the shame that sin brings. What joy it is, isn't it, to know that Christ came to remove sin? I hope today you will spend this day reflecting on this year. The world does it in, in really sad ways. You'll see it, I'm sure, if you haven't already, the, the recap of who, who's died in 2017, who we, who we lost. And I'm sure tonight, today you, you've lost someone you, you've loved, and there's a lot of losses. And, and often, too, we look back and we are often ashamed. You know, man, I screwed up here and I did that. And, wow, why, was I, why was I doing this and, and all these things? Brothers and sisters, may we be encouraged by verse 5 that Christ Jesus came to remove the sin of 2017. That every sin that you committed in 2017, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, those sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Don't bring that shame into 2018. Don't bring that guilt into 2018. Know that all of your sin has been removed by Christ. That He came to remove it. And if Christ came to remove it, why are you returning to it, He says. If Christ Jesus came to remove sin, why is it that you keep running back to it? One cannot claim Christ and live in sin. It's impossible. It's incompatible. One cannot claim Christ and live in habitual, unrepentant sin. It is impossible. Your soul will not allow it. And that's why he writes verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When you and I participate in his work, we have rejoined a side for which we have been liberated from. When we participate in the works of the devil, who is against us? Is it not the Son of God who, who appeared? Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to obliterate them. Now the question may be, what, is the devil defeated? Not exactly. Not yet. In the Bible, when we think about uh, verses that talk about end times and, and think about what Christ did in His first coming and what He will complete in His second coming, there is a tension in the text, an already and a not yet. Is the devil defeated? Yes. Is he yet fully defeated? No. We live in the in-between. We live in the reality that Christ has defeated the devil, but in reality it has yet come to fruition. We know in John, the same author of this letter, will see a vision in Revelation where that evil serpent will finally be destroyed. But for us, we live in the reality. We live in light of that future reality. We live today as if tomorrow is true. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. You live today in light of tomorrow being true. That tomorrow's promises, God's promises about the future are true today. And you live in them. 
That's why John says, you are a child of God now. Right now, you are a child of God. And you will be tomorrow, in the next, in a few trillion years from now, you will be the child of God. Since therefore the author of Hebrews writes that children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partake of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The resurrection of Christ, what we celebrate every Lord's Day, the resurrection of Christ is that hope we have that the enemy has been destroyed. That is why we don't fear death. That's why we're not afraid of death. Because the enemy has been destroyed. Finally, in verses 9 and 10, sin is incompatible with his people. In verse 9, we see sin and the sons of God, don't we? Oh, I wish we had more time to look at these. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. We don't need much interpretation there, do we? Have you been born of God? Then why are you making a practice of sinning? Why are you living in unrepentant sin? You've been born of God. Christians cannot live a life of unrepentant sin for long. Oh, this does not mean that we don't try. That we don't try to hide in the dark. Doesn't mean that we don't try to cover up our sin. Doesn't mean that we don't try as best as we can to live a life of habitual, unrepentant sin. Oh, we try it. And we're never successful, are we? John offers two reasons in verse 9. Because the because God's seed abides in him. Why is it that no one born of God can make a practice of sinning? It is because the Holy Spirit abides in them. Bringing conviction and empowering us to overcome sin and to live a life of holiness. Thanks be to God, He has caused His Spirit to dwell in us and to bring the light of our sin, bring our sin, excuse me, to light. He doesn't let us hide out in our sin. Oh, how we try to cover. Oh, how we love to hide out in sin. But, but how gracious God is to have His Spirit come into and bring us into the light. And number two, the second reason why we can't live in sin is because Christians are regenerate. And He cannot keep on sinning because He's been born of God. The new birth, the new heart, this new appetite for holiness keeps us from sin. John applies a moral test in this passage that all of us should heed. A moral test that all of us should open our eyes to and see clearly as the daylight. By this it is evident who are the sons of God and who are the sons of devil. There are two groups, isn't there? There's no middle group. There's no like riding the fence group. There's no like, I mean, I, you know, it's just two groups, isn't there? Sons of the devil and sons of God. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. What is the motive to holiness? That we are children of God. 
That we are children now, he writes. Not sometime in the future, but we are God's children. As a child reflects his father, so we as God's people reflect our heavenly father. We see the step towards holiness is to see that sin is incompatible with Christ in his sinlessness and his saving work. That sin is incompatible with the people of God. It doesn't fit. It doesn't, it doesn't match. As this new year is upon us, friend, use this time to reflect upon your own sinfulness. Do you see your sin as ugly as your Savior sees it? Does your sinful rebellion nauseate you? Does the sinfulness of sin, the ugliness of sin, motivate you to rid yourself of it through the blood of Christ? You can't get rid of your sin on your own. You need Christ. He came to remove that sin. All you need to do is trust in Him. Repent, turn away, and and flee to Him. Flee your sin and run to Him. Brothers and sisters, may we use our time this Lord's Day to reflect upon our Savior. To remind ourselves that He came to remove our sin. And if He did, why do we keep putting it back on? Why do we clothe ourselves in those filthy rags again? God has clothed you as a child of God in the righteous robes of Christ. More beautiful than any one of us can imagine. Cast off your rags of sin. Live in them no longer. You are a child of the King. Remember that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Sin will not have power over you so long as you abide in Christ. Do not this new year join in the rebellion against our Savior. See that the Spirit of God dwells in you, both to aid you and to empower you to flee your mortal enemy diabolical and wicked serpent. God has given you a new heart with an insatiable appetite for holiness. Feed yourself and your soul on these holy things. Brothers and sisters, you are today a child of God. And friends, if you are not a Christian this morning, may you remember this truth. That whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. May you no longer be deceived that only those who are righteous, and may this truth settle into your hearts this new year. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we do pray that we might be saints because we are saints. That we might live in holiness because we are holy. That we might act like children of God because we are children of God. But we know we cannot do this apart from you. And so our prayer again this this new year is that we might throw off the robes of sin. Those filthy racks. And clothe ourselves again in the righteous robes of Christ. Make us holy we pray this new year. In Jesus' name, amen.